Jesus went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds again gathered around him. And as was his custom, he again taught them. Some Pharisees came to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus answered them, What did Moses command? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment for you. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female, and for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In this he was quoting from the ancient scriptures. So you see there are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together let no one separate. Then in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter and he said to them whoever divorces his wife commits uh, sorry whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her and if she divorces her husband and marries another she commits adultery. People were bringing little children to Jesus in order that he might touch them. And the disciples spoke sternly to them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and he said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not stop them, for it is as such as these that the kingdom of heaven belongs. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them and blessed them. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. I sometimes think these two texts are put together in the lectionary to give preachers a chance to avoid the first bit and preach about the second bit because who doesn't love kids? Right, Bo? Who doesn't love kids? Nobody. Especially one dressed as Superman. But we really can't avoid the other one. One in three marriages in Australia will end in divorce. It's much more difficult to maintain a married relationship now than it's been for a long time for all kinds of reasons. Actually, the divorce rate seems in Australia to be getting uh, uh, less than it has been. It's been closer to one in two, uh, and now it's one in three. And the, I've been looking at this, and the demographers don't really know why, but... But before we can even think about this, we have to think about what the Bible says about divorce and it says all kinds of different things. In the Old Testament, it was a sign of a good husband if he divorced his wife, if she was a foreigner. That was a big part of, uh, of the book of Ezra. It was all, all about that. Um, Moses was very keen to say that you could divorce your wife for whatever reason. And that was then argued about for a thousand years. Uh, did for the, that reason mean only the reason of 
gross immorality that you could divorce your wife or could it be for anything? As one of the great teachers said, even such a thing as burning a meal, you could divorce your wife. Paul in the New Testament says it's a good idea if you don't divorce your wife if she's an unbeliever or a foreigner. And those words are sometimes intermixed and it's hard to know which is which. Joseph, in the story that we'll hear in Advent, in only a few months' time, decided that he should divorce Mary, even though they were only betrothed, they weren't actually married, but he should divorce Mary because she'd been unfaithful, so he thought. And that would be the right and righteous thing to do. So the Bible's got this ongoing conversation about it, so it's not surprising that the Pharisees, who did this to trick Jesus, would ask him a question that was part of an ongoing debate. And it helps us to remember that the Bible is not an Ikea instruction manual. If you've ever had the misfortune of having to put some Ikea furniture together, you'll know there is only one way. You can't do anything other than put it together exactly the way they want you to. Otherwise, it just doesn't work. And even then when you do, sometimes you end up with bits left over. The Bible is not an instruction manual. There's no one way to do it. There's all kinds of ongoing conversations over essentially a 3,000-year period if we include the current day. It's maybe 4,000 years. We don't know how early some of the biblical stories we have were first told, but it's a long time. So we get to this passage, and the Pharisees say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus, in the great Jewish tradition, answers a question with another question. What did Moses command? Which isn't what they asked. They asked, is it lawful? And Jesus says, what did Moses command? Well, Moses allowed, by decree, a divorce, the Pharisees say. Which isn't the question Jesus asked. He asked, what did Moses command? And they said, what Moses allowed. So you can see this kind of... I don't know if you've ever watched a wrestling match um, in the Olympics, but they spend ages circling each other until they found the right moment, and then they pounce. You get that sense with a lot of the dialogues of Jesus, that they're like that. And of course, they were trying to trick Jesus, because just before this, John the Baptist had been executed by Herod Antipas for exactly this issue of saying it's not lawful for you to divorce and marry somebody else's wife, in this case, his brother's wife. And Jesus, we're told in this passage, is right in the middle of Herod Antipas's territory. So this is not just an academic debate. This is life and death stuff. We also probably need to know a little bit more about Judaism and marriage. And we've been talking all the time about a man divorcing his wife, which was all there was to it. Marriage was a transfer of authority from one man to another of a woman. Authority of the father to the authority of the husband. And in fact, some scholars say, well, we really shouldn't think about individuals getting married in in the ancient world. What we're looking at is negotiations of clans marrying each other. So one family negotiates with another family that one of theirs and one of theirs will join together and that will will negotiate either peace or will negotiate a better economic relationship between the two uh, and it will develop the honour of both those families, which is really important to the era. So it's, it's not just individuals, or maybe it's not individuals at all 
because most marriages, in fact all marriages, were arranged by the families. And of course the other thing about marriage in the ancient world is that only husbands could divorce wives. And in Judaism all that was required was you to draft a letter which basically meant writing a note that said I am not her, she is not my wife, I am not her husband and then the wife is thrown out of the house with nothing. Which may be the link to the second part of the passage of the little children because women were the most vulnerable people alongside children in the whole of, of the culture. You imagine if you were in employment with a fickle boss you absolutely needed that job and at any moment for any reason if you didn't do everything that pleased that boss you could be out on your ear with no recompense, no union to, to back you up, no tribunal to go to, it's just done. You can imagine your relationship with that boss would be quite different than if you worked for the state government as a teacher or a lawyer or an accountant where your job was relatively secure. It's not unlike that. People were thrown out, on, the women were thrown out on their ear for no reason at all and with no support and no control. And of course only a man could commit adultery because adultery was the idea that you were making an offence against somebody else's property. That's really the root meaning of the word in the ancient languages. It, you could only offend against somebody else's property and of course the woman was part of your property. So you couldn't commit adultery against a woman just as you couldn't offend a chair. I do what I like with it. It's my chair. I can do what I like with it. If I want to give it to somebody else, chop it up into bits and put it on the fire, it's, it was a, at that level. So, there was no, so the idea that you could commit adultery against another woman, against a woman, was, was about as strange as saying you could offend a chair. Just didn't quite compute. So what does Jesus say? Well, he says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. They would have expected him to say commits adultery, which we all know means against the other man and there would have to be all kinds of things sorted out between the two groups, the two clans and the two families. He commits adultery against not another man's property but against a woman who's her own property, according to Jesus. She owns herself. She is herself her own ownership. And then he says, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery too. She has agency. She can act. This is quite a revolutionary idea that there are individuals in the world called women and by extension children, as we'll hear later, who actually are genuinely human beings in themselves. They're not proto-human beings. They're not like children with the idea was that they would eventually become human. But for now, we've got to keep feeding them because otherwise we won't be able to continue the family name and we won't be able to run the farm. But there was no idea that they had individual ideas of themselves or individual wills. They were just waiting to become human. But here's Jesus saying about children later, but now about women, they can 
They can do things in the world. They are actually human beings and real people. And then Jesus says, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and he's quoting um, Isaiah, the, one of the, uh, sorry, um, Exodus, one of the ancient stories. And they, uh, his, the, husband, uh, the man leaves his mother and father and joins with his wife, and they become this idea of one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. And Jesus is possibly saying here that when two families join together, they are linked in a, in a way that is like your link with your brothers and sisters or your parents. That you can decide that you no longer have a brother because you've parted company over something. But it's not real. You still do. And your brother still has you. And you have to live with that somehow through the rest of your life. Just as it's true with the links that those of us who have lost a parent, we know, or a partner, we know that we're still linked with them and we want to be. But even if we didn't, it wouldn't make any difference. We still are linked. Even if your relationship with your parent was so fraught that when that person died, it gave you relief rather than grief. And for many people that's true. You're still linked to them. And Jesus is giving this idea that there's this deep, intimate link that happens that's always going to be there in some form or another, which, of course, was the reality in ancient Israel. You divorced at great peril because it broke that family relationship, that link, that economic and, and cultural link. So when Jesus says, what God joins together, no one should separate, I think he's saying something like, look, there's a great ideal that I want for the world where we're unifying, not separating, where we're joining together and grafting into each other as communities that shouldn't ever be broken. That's the world in which we want to live. That's the world in which we want things to be. It's a unity of everything. It goes in the... To divorce goes in the opposite direction of what God wants. So is divorce wrong? Well, it's not illegal. It's not illegal now, thank goodness. It wasn't illegal then, obviously. Moses had made it very clear. So divorce isn't wrong in the legal sense. Is it wrong in the moral sense? Well, again... In a sense that somehow there's this high ideal that we should all live up to and if we don't, we're morally reprobate. Well, in one sense that's true, but that's true about everything. Like none of us are living up to any of the things that we think are of great value to, to ourselves or our communities. So, but that's like saying gravity. It's a given. It's true of everything. We know, and we know better than anyone, how many things we failed at in the last week. How little we've been able to do the thing that we felt was right to do. We know. We're telling ourselves that every day of the week. That's our interior monologue. And for some of, our, for some of us, that becomes the only interior monologue, and it drowns everything else. But if we're relatively healthy, we manage to keep that at a, at a, at a, in a place we know it's real, but it doesn't overwhelm us. At least it doesn't overwhelm us most days and that's pretty good so that's not the question the question is 
Is divorce wrong in the way that disease is wrong? If you've got a disease, that's wrong. Not that you shouldn't have it or you've done something wrong to get it, but it's wrong in that you should be living in a world where there is no disease. That's the world we want to be living. We don't live in it, but that's what we want to be. So it is wrong if you're suffering from a, a, a long chronic disease. It's, it's wrong that you should be feeling that, that we should be experiencing that, that it should be curtailing our lives in that way. It, so divorce is wrong in that sense. It's wrong that it hurts us. It's wrong that we can't keep our relationships working to the point where we can see ourselves being together for the next period of our lives. There's no guarantee you'll ever recover from the disease that you have. So it's wrong that it, and it's painful and it hurts. But it's real. I still, I'm, I'm Richard probably does too, I still have people ring me up and say, we want to get married. Do you marry people who've been divorced because one or other of us or both of us have been? Because there are still churches where the answer is, no, I'm sorry, we don't. You should have been perfect the first time around and you weren't. Nothing we can do about it. Thanks for coming. I think that's what it sounds like. That's what it means. But fortunately, Richard and I and many other ministers in many other churches go, well, if, you know, if you're waiting to be perfect before you get married, then don't bother because the person you're marrying is not perfect. So if you are and he or she's not, you're, you're on a hiding to nothing. So just stay as you are because, you, no, we're, you know, we're, it's anybody. Anybody who wants to make the attempt to publicly say we are connected to each other, let's go for it. Are you going to succeed for the rest of your life? I don't know. Not if one in three of us aren't. One in three of us don't make it. That's what happens. So Jesus says we should welcome all the broken, all the disaffected, all the ones that don't count, the children. We're all the broken and the vulnerable. We're all damaged and do damage. Jesus welcomes them. The women have been thrown out. The men who are so righteous that they know exactly how to live their lives and if the woman doesn't do the right thing, she's out the door. Even them are welcome. All of us. And in the very last sentence of these two incredible texts, we get this, talking about children. And he took them up in his arms... And he laid his hands on them and he blessed them.